If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. want to welcome everybody to this evening's Mauer Report. Before I begin, I must remind everybody the views and opinions are those of the host and guest, or guest as it is tonight. Uh, do not reflect any uh, network sponsor or simulcasting partner or anybody else. But first, before we begin, if you haven't subscribed to the Mauer Report, subscribe to the Mauer Report. Okay. My guest tonight is Daniel Albla of the Philip K. Dick Sci-Fi Film Festival. Daniel, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you, Jim? I'm doing pretty good. I'm ex- I've looked. I had to look because you, you, you've been on before, but it's been a while. Seems like we, we're getting okay. together on it. We're getting back on this. But okay. So film festival starts tomorrow. It sure does. So run down where run down who what when where why. Well, okay. So it's tomorrow's opening night, and it's the uh, U.S. premiere of a film of a psychedelic sci-fi film directed in Uganda. It's a an amazing film about uh, a uh, d- drug smuggler who comes across a particular substance that could cause for prophetic visions on on people, and there, there becomes a struggle. So it's very interesting. Uh, the, uh, the producer and writer and cinematographer will be there. So it's the U.S. premiere. Uh, Thursday, we have conscious science fiction. Conscious science fiction. So we have a mostly films from the New York City area. All of them are amazing films. They're uh, they are all dealing with themes uh, of the near future, uh, how technology will impact us positively or negatively. Some of these themes are political in nature. Some of them are social. Some of them are commentaries on our relationship to our uh, issues of mortality, death, and so forth. So that's why we call it conscious sci-fi. Very uh, it's sci-fi with a conscious. Uh, Friday. For the horror and supernatural fans, we got a block between 5 and 7 p.m. Dealing with everything, everything from Nazi zombies to the world coming to an end. and, uh, and the, So it will be a great uh, block for those who are interested in this uh, horror, or what I refer to horror sci-fi block. Uh, Saturday early afternoon, we have uh, a brief history of time travel. This is a documentary. Uh, uh, exploring our fascination with time travel. And uh, one of the guests uh, following the screening of the film will be Dr. Ronald Mallet. And for those who are not familiar with his name, he's actually currently working on a way of sending particles back in time. And he will be talking about the science of time travel, uh, along with the director who will be there uh, following the screening. Uh, Following the documentary, we have the best of Philip K. Dick shorts, and these include uh, shorts from all over the world that reflect and represent the themes of Philip K. Dick. That is, themes like what does it mean to be human? What is the nature of reality? Are there parallel universes? And so forth. And we have some amazing shorts, uh, including uh, a producer who worked in the... Um, Lone Gunman series, the spin-off of the X-Files. One of his films is there. Um, what else? Sunday, we follow Sunday with uh, international sci-fi shorts. 
at uh, early in the afternoon at 2 o'clock. And again, these are shorts from all over the world featuring in, uh, one particular short that has uh, uh, directed by a fellow who's he- worked heavily with the Doctor Who series in London. He'll, he's actually flying from England. And for those Doctor Who fans out there, it will be a great opportunity to meet with someone who's been on the inside of the, one of the longest running sci-fi shows, actually, in, in history. Uh, in addition, there'll be other amazing international shorts in sci-fi. Uh, followed by uh, that block, we're going to have two blocks. One of them is Anya, which deals with the implications of CRISPR technology on uh, humans and how a couple uh, copes with that. And follow Anya is, last but not least, magic. Uh, for those who are not familiar with u- the UFO ufology, magic refers to Magic 12, a serious cobble of uh, conspiracy people who are, uh, understand the nature of the UFO abduction experience who actually are hiding it from us. So this is going to be, this is actually a drama, dramatic piece about a reporter who comes across exactly that, a videotape and a man who claims to be part of this Majestic 12 group. And uh, so this explores the nature of the conspiracy thinking. Is it true or is it not? And then after that, we'll follow up by an awards ceremony at uh, 8.30. So all in all, uh, promises to be a very exciting program. It runs for five days from Wednesday through Sunday. And it all takes place at the Museum of the Moving Image in Astoria, New York. And for those who haven't been there... This is a museum that's really uh, it's a perfect place to host a sci-fi film festival. And in fact, it has a miniature version of the Tyrell building, you know, the building that's featured in the uh, opening scene of uh, Blade Runner. Well, there's a tiny little version of it uh, upstairs. So if you go and see our films, you also have an opportunity to browse and share and look around uh, the museum. And even there is, there's even an indoor cafe and meet and mingle with other filmmakers. Did good there, man. That it's it's been. I remember it, it seems like it's grown every time I've talked to you. So help me out here. How much? Uh, the first time you were on was in 2016. The festival's been going on for what eight years now. It's going on eight years. That's right, eight years. We have. Um, it's amazing, you know. I mean, really, we, we've had some close calls because, as you know, science fiction is not regarded as highly. Uh, by sponsors, corporate sponsors, like uh, it's not it's not kept at the same level as other quote unquote drama pieces. So we basically rely on the love of science fiction from our filmmakers and the audience to participate. If it wasn't for you guys, we really wouldn't be around because corporate sponsors really don't care about science fiction. They just care about these highbrow festivals that go nowhere, and and instead they ignore. Uh, uh, a subject matter, which is really the, is the love of so many. In fact, some of the top films of all time have been science fiction. You know, Blade Runner 2001, uh, The Matrix, keep running it. Yet they pretend that it's not high-brown enough for them. So they, you figure it out. But again, for us, we really rely on you guys, uh, the listener, the buyer, the consumer, the uh, filmmaker, all to really make it happen. It's truly a grassroots movement. And yes, we did start in 2008, and uh, this year is actually, we have a smaller selection of film than we usually do. Uh, even though, in, consequently, the screening process was brutal because we've actually got more films. 
But be, given the format and the amount of hours we have this week, we had to really narrow it down to the cream of the crop, really the, the best, and, and this is guaranteed to enjoy. Basically, anyone who comes to our, any of those blocks will, is guaranteed to enjoy uh, the block. Yeah, we've been around, but yes, yeah, it's definitely on its eighth year now. Just amazing. So if, if somebody out there is listening who is a filmmaker or interested, where can I send them to get more information about, or, or more information about this week even? The best place is directly to our website, and it's the Philip, T-H-E, Philip K. Dick Film Festival.com, the Philip K. Dick Film Festival.com, and there is a program that breaks down every single film we're going to be scrolling, will be screening as well as trailers and links to where they can buy tickets. Still just, it still just amazes me how it seems just to always be growing, but it, ha- it had to have been harder. I, I heard you say there's fewer screens, fewer, fewer viewings. And I just imagine the pile of, I can't imagine being in your shoes trying to pick which ones. Oh, it was tough. It really is. So we have a group of programmers, and I, and at the end, they give us the films. They give me the films, and I get a chance to take a look at all the films. We generally about 100, and out of those, we had to narrow it down to about 38, 38 films. And also, I just want to add one other thing. This is the first year we introduced this screenplay competition, because I think it's very important for filmmakers not to forget that, that writing is really the beating heart of any good film. It's okay to be seduced by red cameras or the what's it black box or the magic box uh, cameras and but at the end, really, what makes the film stand out is the writing and the and and the, the acting. Now, you can always get special effects, but but really, if you don't have that, that then then you've wasted your time and money. So we're really focusing heavily on promoting uh, that aspect. That's why for the first time we have our screenwriting competition uh, in the sci-fi, and uh, supernatural categories. Very happy. And, of course, we have a couple of virtual reality um, uh, installations for those who are interested in exploring um, the applications of virtual reality in science fiction. So, it's, um, I mean, basically, I, the filmmakers are really the ones who provide the ideas to us. And then some, there'll be years, there's been, I think three years back, we actually had a, a Philip K. Dick game that it was loosely based on on uh, Philip K. Dick. Other times we've had installations, so we're fairly open to uh, the filmmakers uh, or or uh, producers have in mind. So anywhere, any way, any medium to really f- explore and expand the themes, we're more than uh, open to uh, to consider them. As long as people can, as long as they make it interactive, people get a chance to really be part of a of a larger community. That's the key anymore, right? You have to be growing the community. Well, yeah, people are, yeah, and people really are. Uh, they can catch films on Netflix. So the reason why go anywhere, right? Well, for one thing is we anyone who's been to any of our festivals gets a, feels a sense of. Uh, camaraderie, sense of a connection, that we're part of a culture, of a tribe, our own little sci-fi PKD tribe. Uh, I like to always start off the festival by asking people, how many of you fell at one point or another that you don't fit in? Not just fit in in 
the culture, it fit in general, in reality. And a lot of people raised their hands because at some point or another, we always felt like we're not, we're so, should have been born in another time, maybe in another planet. And the truth is that I, and I asked people, I said, look around. How many of you, look, you, now we all fit in because we're all part of this community. See, we are, the outsider can feel like an insider in our festival. And that's part of my mission. It's not just to show films, to really bring people together and have them feel they're, they're not just alone, one atom, mindless atom or, or soul, but there are others out there who feel the same way, you know, in terms of their passion for Philip K. Dick and what technology is doing and so forth. So um, that's really what gets me going. It's not just showing films, which are great, and it's also a good way of getting the word out, but, but also bringing people together in a live physical setting, not just a live streaming uh, by itself, but in a place where people, people actually can see and, and talk and, and to others in real time. That's the key. And, you know, I was sitting here thinking, we, we kind of share the same struggle because the, oh, inter- yeah. the Internet has made things so great, right? And you've got everything that you could want. But the right. we've, we've lost kind of that magic of the imagination being radio or science side because I can literally, well, not me particularly, but somebody with a correct skill set can go generate anything they want on a computer, right? So the creative part of the mind has failed us. I mean, I remember seeing Bond talking into his wrist, right? And that seemed far-fetched to me, right? And now, what are people doing? Talking into the wrist. (laughs) Well, that's it. I mean, exactly. So the uh, I always like to think of sci-fi as the science of tomorrow. There have been a lot of products that came up early back, early Dick Tracy, you know? And it's... uh, or the Universal Translator, Star Trek, right? We have Google Translator. We're just getting there. At least, you know, some languages, you can just, like, say something, and it will, you know, give you a, a rough translation of, in another language. So, yes, we are getting there. And I think it's important that we maintain and strengthen the capacity of the imagination. Uh, and sometimes too much. There's that saying in film, less is more. And uh, sometimes we just bombard people with special effects and don't leave anything to the imagination. We're actually doing them a disservice. There have been films in the past that actually didn't show much, but they created a sense of suspense and, and, and horror and possibility and intrigue. And the imagination filled the gaps. Those sometimes are the best films. You know, some of I can't think of right now, but there are a couple of early directors, contemporary of Hitchcock, even Hitchcock himself. He left a lot to the imagination, and it, it was no, it wasn't there out there explicitly in the open, but it allowed the viewer to add his own or project his own um, what if or his own fears into that. So, and that's why I see with a lot of films today, they're just they're going way over, way overboard with the visual effects. And in itself, for instance, like why Iron Man, right? Which has been one of the most successful superhero films. It's because Robert Downey Jr. He brings he brings to that character something that is beyond a two-dimensional uh, cartoon. And that's why that film ended up doing and that whole franchise doing better than just any Superman or Batman or any of those other ones that have been adapted over the years because of the acting or that, that, that special elusive element. So it's essential. And um, yes, I mean, the ability to engage the imagination and to really open the doors to what's possible. That's that's something we really need to keep nourishing and, and, and nurturing. 
So I'm going to put you hard on the spot, and I normally don't like to do this, but you're going to you're going to understand why here in a minute. Um, sure. Is is there one film that you're waiting to? You can't wait to see everybody's reaction to it. Like you, you've enjoyed it, or it caused such a wave of emotion in, in yourself, but that you've picked for the festival. You're kind of really looking forward to more okay. more than the others. I'm sure they're all kind of have this, but I'm sure there's one that kind of sets the bar. Mm, okay, let me think here. Uh, one that sets the bar. I've seen them all. Uh, wow. Um, man, I, I just can't think of one specific one that... Um, I, I, last year we had one, uh, but let me see. This one that you know, come to mind. Um, hmm. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Think here. Mm. Well, I know that was. I told. I told you that was going to be difficult. I, I guess maybe. Not, yeah. It, maybe it, maybe you know, for it, me. It, maybe for me because of what I kind of do. Maybe it, maybe it's the time travel stuff and see how people react to that. Well, you know, I mean, for me personally, I've watched, there have been films in the past where I can wait for, to see the audience reaction. The more the horror in, horror supernatural in. Um, and uh, this year, the old, really good films. Uh, I would say um, perhaps Wide Awake Over Bridgewater. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, that's uh, has a has sort of an X Fileish quality, and it really is kind of for those who grew up with the X Files. This this is a, this will be a real joy because it has it's the guy worked on and, and he worked on the uh, Long Gunman twenty years ago, and he was a, a project manager or, or a production manager there. Now he's, he's, he's since then he's been working on producing other films like Mayans or Damien. You know the the show on uh, I think it was Hulu, um, and uh, uh, but that's the one film that probably I think would would raise some eyebrows um, on the sci-fi end. Like that's one thing that I that I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's 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 one. Um, they're really. Uh, they all, they really are all amazing. I see, yeah, what, bright, uh, wide awake over Bridgewater's one. What would the other one be, in, um, on the, on the horror end? Oh, okay, yeah, okay, I got one. A uh, good head. Good head. <laughs> That's a good one that I would say I will definitely raise some eyebrows. When I saw it, I said, oh my God, this is like, it's not like graphic or violent or anything, but it's just like, it's a very, uh, surrealistic film. It definitely will be, a, it will be. It will be a stunner when you watch it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now give me, gotta give me over a little while to think about these. They're all so good, you know. Oh, oh. getting to that point. Hey, um, Philip, what was the website again? I'm sorry, I should have that in front of me. I'm sorry. Which is what? What was the website again? Oh, cool. The Philip K. Dick Film Festival. And that starts tomorrow, uh, March 4th. It starts tomorrow, yes. And uh, we're going to have films from, literally from all continents, except Antarctica. Maybe next year we'll have Antarctica. We'll have a, a, but we really have films from Africa, from Asia, 
South and North America, from Europe, Australia, you know, we have it. We got films from all over the world. Truly international. From Russia. Amazing. Keep up the good work. Um, I thank you and Jonathan for keeping me in the loop about all of them. So keep up the good work. Absolutely, Jim. And I hope to, uh, one of these days, to run into one of our festivals, you know. It's on my list. I got to just, you know. Yeah. Just Anyways. stop by. Just drop it off. Surprises. <laughs> I will. Have a good evening, man. Okay. Well, Jim, look, it's been great. And again, thank you for really sharing this with with us, with your viewers and listeners, because if it wasn't people like you, really, it would be very difficult for us to run a festival, you know. Well, thank you. And that's, uh, oops, oops, hung up on him. He was about ready to say something else, but okay. So as I'm bringing up my next guest, I'll do that here. Uh, we're going to take a minute and transition, a hard transition from science fiction to today's present reality. Um, hey, this is David. David, I, I was just, I was just transitioning from the science fiction world to you in a, um, not so pleasant way, I guess. There's no way to do that pleasantly. I, I guess, I guess before we preference this, uh, David does carry the letters PhD, but it's not in medical, so none of this is medical advice, even though it's good solid advice, just so neither of us get sued going forward. Even though I did the disclaimer at the beginning of the show, I just kind of figured keep that all clean and toasty because we're going to be talking about Corona and, right. um, okay. So I guess I should officially introduce you. David Proden, who has been on the show a couple times is, uh, School safety expert wrote the uh, wrote the book that I can't see because I, can't, <laughs> I didn't prepare. See, yeah, school of Airs, uh, rethinking school safety in America, and host the, and host the beautiful Safety Doc podcast. So okay, now that we've got all that taken care of, because you know, it, otherwise we'll forget. So oh, yeah. David, I, I we kind of talked a little bit before the show about which way we want to go, and I, I wanted to start with how do we protect ourselves as end users? I guess that's the easiest question we're going to have probably tonight. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm guessing hand washing. Is that basically yeah. the, the kick here? Yeah, it absolutely uh, would be hand washing and hand washing for a solid 60 seconds. I mean, that kind of sounds ridiculous, ridiculous, right, that we're going to sit there and wash our hands for 60 seconds. But, yeah, washing your hands, just being conscious about touching your face. Um, that's been proven effective in schools when they've had traditional flu outbreaks to drastically reduce those numbers and kind of bring things back under control. So, um, and Jim, you know, we, we don't know, nobody knows, right, how COVID actually is transferred, how long it might, you know, live on different items, whether, you know, it be a, a fabric surface or a hard surface. So there's a lot of questions with that. But, um, yeah, as, as you indicated, you know, washing your hands is going to be probably number one in prevention. It, Schools will do that. I mean, as a former school administrator, absolutely, that's where schools are going to be working with their staff right now, saying, get your kids in the bathroom, <laughs> count to 60, do the alphabet song as they're washing their hands, and then, you know, send them out. So, as you know, I have the duck pond, so I have to ask this question out of context because Cat Ward is making me ask you this, because <laughs> if, I, if I don't do it right now, it doesn't fit in the rest of the conversation. So since we're still kind of in this early stage, we'll go with it. Um how many how many college students have referenced your book as a a reference in a college assignment? Wow, you know that's a that's a great question. Um, I I don't have an exact answer, although I know two um, university students have asked me if they could cite it in their work 
their doctoral work in the last maybe month. So, yeah, those things kind of take a while to catch up, like on Google Scholar um, and other sources to, to see where it's at. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's always fun. I'm like, oh, my goodness, yeah. Certainly you can, can cite my work. So, yeah, I, I believe it's been cited somewhere up in Canada in a, you know, by some tremendous researchers who had an awesome project that, that earned stellar marks. So that's, that's to me, that's, that's, that's important. That's, that's the key. If you're going to use it, you've got to get a good mark on it, right? Absolutely. And, and if you can go, you know, across into other countries, I know, you know, the book is in Nigeria and, and there are Alberta. It's also in Squamish Library up in Canada, um, in Squamish. So, but yeah. So that's, that's where we're at. So Thanks, since, we're taking, yeah, since we're taking <laughs> listener listener questions at this point, we'll ask Germantown Runner's first question of the night. Big shout out to him on Super Tuesday for listening because I know he wants to be somewhere else um, in front of a TV watching some political coverage. Why, I don't know, because it'll be there in an hour. Uh, <laughs> don't keep me up to date, I'm sure. Uh, do you believe the virus came into being as a trans species from a biological warfare lab? Wow. Okay. Just well, going for it right now, right? <laughs> right. He's going to hit me with the career ender right off the bat here. Well, um, boy, you know, it just seems because what, you know, with the center being Wuhan and, and you know, the information of, of biological um, experiments, I don't, I, I think it's, I think it's biological experiment that got loose. I wouldn't be surprised um, if that's the origin. I, I just think the trans species thing has, is, has been pretty prevalent, right? That's nothing new of eating bats or, or that, you know, different ways to, to transmit. Um, I don't, I don't know. I think there's, it's biological. And the fact too, that just observing how it mirrors um, some aspects of what is it, the AIDS virus. So, Seems like it has a, a unique way it's mutating too. Again, I'm not a physician, but I'm, I'm the stuff that I'm reading kind of points me to the direction that this this kind of um, was the genie that got out of the bottle. So to put it back where we need to put it, um, the the schools in Japan have closed for what did you tell me a month? A month, yes. So at what point, being a former school minister, do you, does that cross your plate? How far, how far does this have to get before you even think about doing that? Right. Well, I'll tell you, I, I believe they're thinking about it right now. Um, and I I am teaching a university course right now with 14 school administrators and a number of them, it's it's already come up at, you know, board meetings, meetings with their county mental health. And of course, some of the bigger districts, it's going to it's going to resonate a little bit louder. Um, it seems, you know, if we watch what's happening out in places like Seattle, uh, you know, having various serious discussions of whether or not to to maintain um, school programming. So the thing is, um, it kind of Jim, it kind of comes into this whole customer perceived value and social proof thing, right? So if one substantial district does it, you know, let's say a Seattle, you know, closes or Los Angeles or Philadelphia, whatever, um, then it becomes much easier for other districts to say, well, we're going to close too. So I, th- I think there's a lot of watching in health departments at a county level because districts don't make this decision without their emergency management at a county level saying, yes, we want you to close down. Now, um, you know, and there'll be some reasons districts would close down anyway. Like if 30% of your kids are more out, you're probably going to shut down or, or staff because you just wouldn't be able to function. But um, I think th- this is the thing, though, right? I wrote an article um, in August in Crisis Response Journal called Bullets or Bacterium in Pursuit of the Forgotten School Intruder. And in that article, 
um, which I sh- it's I shared it on Twitter a couple times already today. But I wrote about MRSA because it was back in 2014. President Obama issued an executive order um, for uh, combating MRSA because it looked like MRSA was going to become very prevalent in our schools and hospitals and nursing homes and and just you know kind of work its way throughout you know. Our, our world as we know it. And um, nothing happened to that extent. It just kind of went away. But, you know, now, so, you know, people didn't plan these big plans for MRSA, but that was an executive order. So really, schools aren't prepared (laughs) for pandemics. Like, they're not. They weren't for SARS. They're not now. What are they doing? They're doing active shooter drills. You know, they're going full scale on that. They're not going full scale on pandemic. You know, maybe in the last three weeks, yeah. But um, this is catching schools off guard. They don't know what to do. Counties are panicking um, at this point because, you know, it's it's everything on the news breaking. You know, latest update on MRSA or, or latest uh, update on, on the um, COVID-19. And so I, I think we're at a point, Jim, where I could see dominoes tip really fast. And talking to the people in schools who are saying, we're meeting with our school board and we're putting contingency plans together in case we need to close. We're also at a point now, remember, where we have spring break. So a lot of schools are approaching their spring break in the next week or two. So it's kind of natural if you were just to say, we're going to go on spring break and extend it for two or three weeks. And the reality is, will this um, impact anything positively? Like, will it make us healthier, safer? I don't think so. I mean, because the kids are still going to be, you know, home going to you know, stores and out in the community. Um, I, I don't see schools as, as being this this place where everybody just switches these viruses and, and they kind of, you know, multiply and it, it just amplifies. So um, did, did that answer the question? It did. <laughs> it filled, it filled I, I, airtime. <laughs> it did that too, but it answered the question. So the follow-up question uh, before I get into some of these other things that the, the chatter's talking about is, okay, so... David, you closed your school for two weeks, right? Well, right. that has that has that ripple effect of making everything go longer into the summer or take other days away. So that all has to factor. It's just not a flip it off and not worry about it type type of deal. Oh yeah, yeah. So so Jim, this is this is interesting. I was going back and looking at my notes um, from when we were preparing for SARS. When I was a school administrator, the SARS virus, um, there was thought that that could be pandemic. And what the school board wanted most of all was to make sure we had a plan that people got paid. <laughs> so <laughs> that was like the number one thing we were working on. What if, if payroll goes down? Can we automate this? So it's really weird where people's priorities kind of fall, but they felt that that structure needed to be in place. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, if you are down for a few weeks, um, yeah, what do you do um, for – I mean, daycares are going to, you know, not be able to absorb that capacity. So our parents going to take off of work and then you're going to have that ripple through the service and, and, you know, supply chain. You know, are people going to say, hey, I'm not in the office today because, yeah, I'm home with my kids. Um, yeah. And eventually it does get to issues like, um, you know, how does it affect payroll? How does it affect instructional time? All of the states could make a decision kind of like a it's called a force majeure so force majeure things you know something so unpredictable happens you just have to deal with it like an asteroid hits the earth right that'd be force majeure we we really couldn't anticipate it and a state would have to say you know we're going to basically allow you to cut your school year short or do remote learning um 
But you run into issues, right? Because the federal law has some some stipulations that you have to be so many days in session if you're receiving federal funds. And then also students with disabilities have individualized education plans. That's under the federal government. So even if a school had to shut down, would they have to come back for like June and July to meet these IEP requirements? So these are all like decisions that would have to be made by Betsy DeVos um, and the, the state uh, Department of Ed folks like really fast, you know, right? Like in the next week or two of saying, here's the plan. Um, so I assume those discussions are happening behind the scenes. I know they're not coming down to a district level, um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely Right. And who's to know? I mean, I think I don't think Japan will open up again this year. I think Japan is is closed for the rest of the year. I fully don't anticipate that they'll start it up again. So, I, it, it, you know, who knows? But, that, but that, that seems to be an easier set of circumstances, right? Or where, where it just becomes a blanket statement and they're just done. Right. But here we've got so many moving pieces. Your local oh, yeah. district, your your state, your federal this 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 is going to get more messy than the virus pretty soon if it comes to this. Yeah, it it really does. I mean, who gives out the statement? I mean, so so for actually closing a school, I mean, it could be some federal mandate. Um, otherwise, it's going to be county by county. Now in Wisconsin, that gets messy. I mean, we have seventy two counties, so some counties could close. Um, other counties, you know, could stay open. So then, it, 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 yeah, it gets really weird. I mean, then it's this thing of saying, well, the county next to us closed, like all of their schools, they put out an order, but our schools are still open. So what's the deal? Like, you know, is there some invisible fence at the county line that zaps this, like the bug zapper up at, you know, my my place in summer? Um, so that's the that's the whole pressure that will happen, this, this whole customer perceived value social proof. I think when one place starts, when they say we're shutting down, Everybody else around them will shut down because the parents are going to come out. They're going to demand it. You know, you need to keep um, our kids safe. And again, this per- this perception, right? I'm I'm I personally haven't seen anything that heightens my concern to um, a level where I'm not able to sleep at night and I have two children that attend public school. Um, but I do know that this is the way that things work with. Um, you know, with both marketing and customer perceived value, because I see it in the school safety industry. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're in for some very um, unprecedented times. And, and you're right. At what level does the state jump in and make a decision so the counties aren't on their own to do this? Um, I don't see individual district dr- districts probably jumping in and doing this. Um, being you know the lone wolf on this, they're going to take guidance from the from the counties. But but I mean, you know, again, this this is this will have an extreme effect. And we saw what happened with the stock market. I mean, my goodness, I I would have never imagined that we saw a, an emergency interest rate cut today of a half percent. Well, you know, Jim, I mean, we some of these these things are having. You know these massive societal ripples now that we haven't seen since like the 2008 um, financial crisis. I mean, and financial was somewhat predictable, right? It's financial, it's numbers. Where this is still really unknown, and so the panicky part of this is really freaky. Yeah, I mean, um, I had a guest on a, about a month ago predicting financial collapse, but nothing of this scale. I mean, who could have predicted this virus? But it's interesting to see how that relates and has made force the issue, so to speak. Right. 
Yeah, and and you know what does it look like then? In um, schools, have to consider supply chains, right? Because a lot of schools, you know, order um, you know month by month for their their hot lunches. So they're they're getting all of this from Cisco or US Blue or things like that. And these are things people don't think about. So suddenly, if that demand is drawn down because maybe those are going to you know shelters or other resources, there might be a logistics thing of saying we can't get enough food for our hot lunch. I mean, it's not like schools typically have this stored for more than, you know, three or four weeks at a time. So those types of things start to come into play, too, of can we even operate our school with these essential type of, of, of supplies and services? So a question to your much more safe place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're steering back into, into things here. Uh, some sc- states have begun questioning the usefulness of the mass shooter drills. Um, saying they're counterproductive for students and becoming traumatized based on the intensity of these of drills. I know I've I can't remember if we've talked about this in the show or talked about this off the record. So let's get it on the on the record. Okay. What yeah. what do you what do you what do you think? Yeah, I I agree with that. There was a joint uh, statement by NEA National Educators Association, American Federation of Teachers, and Every Town USA, which are the two biggest teachers unions, and then also I think the biggest. Um, gun violence research uh, organization came out in February and they said, you know, listen, we can't keep doing this because we're introducing, you know, trauma to staff and students. So a few things have to change immediately. We want drills to be announced and we don't want drills to simulate gun violence. So no one running up and down a a hallway with a gun. Um, I've taken it. I, I, I agree. Like in in the study, it it cited, you know, many researchers and psychiatrists and, um, but, it, I, you know, I've I've also talked about this on PBS TV, and when I was on uh, in July, it said it's it's a weird standard because we don't do fire drills or tornado drills the same way we do intruder drills. We 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 don't go to that hyper realism, and um, you know there there's a lot of people who are being uh, physically and psychologically injured by these drills. I followed the work of um, a researcher up in Canada. Um, uh, Gustavo Tarecki, who's who's researching early trauma, um, in the damage it does to to kids. He doesn't do actor shooter drills, but he does other types of of psychological trauma. And I think we're not far from seeing some of that happen in the U.S. And the reason it won't happen, like, is it's you can't. How can you do a research proposal where you say we're going to have one group of kids and we're going to put them through all of these drills and then we're going to test them to see if they're okay? I mean, no one would ever approve that. But I think it's it's overdue for this to be. Um, corralled in. Um, I thought it's been really wild for a long time. Um, and and also, I mean, it's, it's litigation, right? As an expert witness, I can start to see the litigation come in on, on this of what was the learning objective, who reviewed these drills ahead of time. So, yeah. I, I, you know, we have to have intruder drills. Absolutely. But we need to have intelligent intruder drills. Actually, and get this, I wrote a, I wrote a piece about this. It'll be out in um, Cap and Journal Phi Delta Kappen in May, and I've been working with lawmakers on a bill that would require institutional review board um, in all schools. And at universities, IRB serves to look at research proposals to make sure you're not doing harm to subjects. So basically do no harm. Um, came in after the Nuremberg trials, and then in 1974, it actually became a law after some really wild college experiments like the Stanford Prison Experiment in 1971. But um, but yeah, it, to me, it's time. There, these things have gotten out of control. I actually uh, was looking back at some of the trainings I participated in, and I'm like, oh my god, 
you know, screaming in with a squad car with a bulletproof vest running up and down hallways. And I've got some video of these things. And um, it, it just was it was just way over the top. And I think people kind of they tried to do the right thing. Um, but now we're realizing we don't we shouldn't be doing that. And kids have a hard time, right? Kids have a hard time figuring out what's real and what's not, especially if you're, you know, third grade or under. Um, so, well, it's easy when it's on screen, right? Like that's TV. It, you can help the child make a logical disconnection between what's in that box and what's not. But when you try to create a safe place, I know this is the running kind of you know joke that I have with you about you know in that space and then you have bad things happen in that space well it's no longer a safe space it's just uh i don't even know what the word is anymore right yeah yeah totally Uh, you know kids kids um lose trust in their school uh when they're experienced to these types of of drills um so yeah it's and the thing that's happening right now you know actually is legislation is being passed i think six states i talked about it today in a webinar that i did um for schools to not comply they don't have to comply in like these six states with building codes and ada for classrooms they can put up any kind of barricades and stuff they want which is really dangerous because kids can get locked inside they do i shared a story about a school in wisconsin here um where Students got locked inside of a room because the device failed and they had to kick out the door to get the kids out. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so I, I, I think we're on the cusp of seeing smarter drills, you know, more effective drills, but no one, no one monitors this, right? There's no federal agency. There's no state agency. <laughs> it's pretty much up to the districts and they work with their local police. So, you know, we're, as we make this bridge, as we're having this discussion about, you know, the coronavirus, there's there's so much that has to happen at a local level for monitoring um, of whether it's a virus or whether it's drills. It, it seems uh, uh, difficult. It seems more complex than ever to be a school minister. I guess is the easiest joke to make right now, right? Because you've got all this it stuff is. plus trying yeah, to it, make sure it, everybody gets educated. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, it is. It, 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 I mean, these are amazing, amazing folks. But when I taught the class that I'm teaching right now, I know I taught this class for 15 years, right? Um, Students were saying to me, they're like, it just seems like we're covering so much technical information. Like we, we did a case study about allergy management. You know, what if we have a student that is going to join the district next week and they have a life-threatening peanut allergy? How would we prepare? So we walk through that, but it becomes really daunting. You know, all the different laws you have to apply, you have to think about. And actually, like food in school, that's the Department of Ag. So you have to make sure that you're compliant with the Department of Ag rules versus the Department of Education rules. So people are like, how do you do this? I'm yeah, it is kind of learn as you go. It's really, it is really challenging. Um, so, I mean, when I come in, I, my job is to kind of figure out where people are at and to, you know, simplify the process down as much as I can. But, yeah, my goodness, I'm glad I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> but is, I guess, I hate to say this, but is there a, I guess, I don't, I'm trying to figure out a title, like a risk management person? That just kind of sits around, I don't want to say sits around. Boy, this is a bad, con- bad way of wording this. But somebody who is just solely focused on non-classroom uh, related studies, right? You know, a kind of just. Yeah. Yeah. Every school has somebody assigned to that. You know, whether it's somebody monitoring asbestos, um, you know, or making 
I guess, sure that your your buildings are up to code or or how you'd respond. You know, if it's a snowy day and you have to put so much salt on your sidewalks. I mean, things, all of these type of things. Now, the thing is, like, in a district, a big district. So, Wisconsin, we have 421 districts, and most of those are small. Like, one district, Jim is on an island. It has less than 100 kids. It takes 30 minutes to get out to it, Washington Island, right? So, you know, there the superintendent is the same one who's your emergency manager who shovels the sidewalk and prepares the lunch in a microwave. But um, so the thing, I guess the answer is yes, but usually you have to get to be pretty big. So maybe like 75 districts have someone in that role, maybe, you know, full time where most districts don't. Most districts in our state, in most states probably, you know, in the country have a lot of small districts where your entire district K-12 could be 500 kids or less. Well, then, you know, it's part Maybe it's part of the head of custodian and grounds. Their job could be part of a high school principal's job. So it's usually rolled into something. And, yeah, that that's where, you know, it gets hard to maintain all of these plans, right? Because you have an intruder plan and you have now a pandemic plan and you have to, you know, what do you do for fire drills or what if you have a power outage or you have to evacuate because of, you know, whatever. So, um yeah, when you have somebody designated to this in a bigger district, they've got this stuff pretty much down because they've got people on top of this. But that's just not the case here. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of superintendents in the northern part of the state, and the northern part of the state is very rural. <laughs> like in, you know, they get snowstorms in October and you know all in, in May, like to shut down school. So you know, for them, it's kind of a, a one-person show. You know, like they might be the superintendent and head of nutrition and head of building new grounds and transportation and emergency management. So, um, so yeah, it, there there isn't equity in a lot of states in this, which is really also a shame. You know, we, we should have state leadership on, on this. In Wisconsin, school safety um, falls under the Department of Justice. It used to fall, I don't know where it fell a couple of years ago. It was really weird before that, but... Um, you know, so it looks a lot at like intruder and stuff like that. But you know, as you said, the day to day things. Um, it, it, if you're bigger, I mean, just you're going to be better off because you're probably going to have that position funded. Just incredible to think about somebody trying to worry about lunch and snow removal and a fire drill all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you know, and, and yeah, and so many of our principals, you know, they're in my classes. They cover a couple buildings, and their buildings could be twenty miles apart in a rural district. Um, so that you know, that's something else. You know, we kind of think of a school campus. Well, a school campus is yeah, brick and mortar, but it's also portable buildings. It's all of our four K community sites. Think of those. I mean, those are all over the place. It's kids taking online classes. So maybe they're only in your building one day a week if they're in at all. And you need to make sure you're you're connecting with all of those sites. So, oh, man, it, it it's a lot. And suddenly, as you as we indicated, really, I mean, before Christmas, you know, you know, COVID-19, who, who's thinking about that? I mean, nobody thought about it. And now. It's just every headline, everything coming out for schools, um, you know, administrators calling me all the time um, that I've had in classes and I know and, and just, you know, running some things past me, you know, what should we do for communications with families? What should we do with our, our staff? How should we answer these questions? Um, you know, what if our students are asking, you know, questions of how we how we're preparing for this? Um, it, so one of the things that's happening um, is. Schools are being marketed these these various devices to kill the virus, right? Like the latest I've seen in my area, 
It's a backpack. It looks like Ghostbusters 1984, right? So it's not a proton pack. It's you're shooting out, you know, kind of the disinfectant. And these things are like tens of thousands of dollars. And plus, you have to do the refill cartridges. And school boards are just buying them because they're thinking, well, if there is a chance, this is going to kill the virus and make us safer. But then if we take a step back, right, you know, the moment kids walk in and out of a building, you know, hundreds of kids in all the places they've been, you know, the building's contaminated again, right? And you're never fully going to be able to kill whatever's in a, a building, um, you know, just, just with a walkthrough with these types of devices. But um, we saw after kind of MRSA was big on the radar in 2014, there were districts, Jim, kind of out by you, they were buying a device that was called the Gronk. G-O-R-N-K. Remember um, what Gronk, the tight end from um, the yeah, Patriots? Yeah. <laughs> so they call it the Gronk because this, this was like this stout little robot that would go around and it would it would shoot laser beams in classrooms. The kids would be out of there and it would kill MRSA and they would put it in their gyms and weight rooms and stuff. Those things sold for 100000 bucks a piece and they, <laughs> they, the company sold 350 of them right away. So, Jim, I mean, like, Wow. And who knows how much they cost the manufacturer. And again, like how effective is this versus, you know, the reality of, you know, you're, you're going to have kids coming back in and out in every piece of clothing, every book, everything that they've stepped on where someone else has stepped on before they've got to school. What's in your HVAC system? What might you be bringing in from outside? So, you know, wait, it's wait, easy. Wait. Does it Lysol, the aerosol spray kill MRSA too? Um, it does. Yeah. It does. Okay. And actually, if you look on it, it says human coronavirus. Yeah, my daughter pointed that out to me like a day ago because it was trending in the in the news. Um, but yeah, well, well, let's not get off topic here for a second. A hundred thousand dollars for a machine, so you could probably hire. Well, we'll say we'll hire two people at forty thousand and buy a twenty thousand dollars <laughs> supply of Lysol. And <laughs> I think we've got a business model here, right? We're not only but... employing people. We're doing the same thing, and we're not oh hundred thousand dollars, right? And it's it's and it doesn't get a blink, right? Nobody blinks their eye at this because uh, you know it's presented to the board by the buildings and grounds folks, and they're saying, "Hey, like the vendor came in, and we could do this." And they've been showing it on the news here, you know, going around and spraying down the the gyms and door handles. And again, I mean, that stuff probably does what it's supposed to do, but you're talking about. You know, this this massive scale of trying to sanitize this building, and we don't know how, for example, it hasn't been conveyed, how the virus spreads, how long it lives, and kids are coming back in and out. So the moment that would happen, logically, this, you know, your sanitized environment would be compromised. So it, it just doesn't make sense um, to, to do that, you know. But, uh, again, people will go for that option because if they believe that, customer perceived value there's a chance that this will decrease the likelihood that you know the virus will will be in the school or their kid will get sick they're going to go for it but and then you know these expenditures happen and these aren't just one-time things right because you have to buy the equipment to refill it and and maintenance and they don't loan these things to you i mean they they make you buy them um and it, it, so it's crazy. Those purchases come out of a fund balance, so schools don't budget for that. So they they go into their fund balance, which is you know all schools that has been kind of declining. And that's a that's a really sad part of this is we see people market it to. It's a similar after a school shooting. You know, marketers come out 
And they'll say, you know, here's bullet resistive glass, here's metal detectors, here's new cameras, and and you know that that spikes up for you know maybe a couple months, and that's where we're at right now. People just selling this stuff like crazy, no evidence behind it, you know, really like that it'll large scale, you know, sanitize the school, and even hospitals, you know, openly have said if they need negative pressure environments to you know, maintain negative pressure, meaning the air isn't circulating out of a certain room if they're going to maintain, um, you know, prevent contamination. In schools, of course, you know, they don't have any capacity to do that. They're not airtight, don't have those structures in place. So, um, but yeah, it's 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 an interesting time because, um, you know, we see this on the news. The marketers are approaching schools. And here's the one thing um, with, with schools, right? It's if you're a school board and you're getting inundated, you know, you have to do something, you have to do something. It's pleasure or pain marketing. You're going to do something for pleasure. You're going to, you know, buy this new sports field, this AstroTurf, or you're going to escape pain. Okay, we're getting a lot of pain from our constituents right now, from parents about the coronavirus. So we're going to escape pain by buying these backpacks and these devices, which, you know, have been claimed as countering the virus. So, People people just get uh, taken down a, a really bad path without the science. It's just remarkable to think about all the ins and outs and bells and whistles and yeah, yeah, it really is. And, and again, you know, if we just start looking at the logistics, I mean, are we testing kids in school? Do we have kits so a school nurse can test kids? No, like we don't have any of that. We don't have any way to test kids when they get on a bus or at daycare centers. So, um, you know, it, 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 we, we skip a lot of steps, right? We're, we're all of a sudden to the step where we're getting these special machines or we might close down all of these schools without, you know, thinking what happens next and, and what happens next. Um, it's kind of like in school safety. Uh, all of these efforts to put barricades in, and, Jim, there isn't one federal law that requires schools lock their doors during the day. And the only state that requires that classroom doors be locked is Kentucky. So, you know, but yet I would have all lost of this, a lot. I would have lost a lot of money and guessed a lot of states before I got to Kentucky. And Kentucky just started in 2020, and there's a lot of pushback. And principals are saying, you know, this interferes with our HVAC. It's too hot in one room, too cold in another. Uh, school board members said kids, little kids have to use the bathroom too much, so to unlock and lock the door is a big hassle. And so people, you know, they, they try to fatigue systems that are put in place to, to keep them safe. But, yeah, I, I I was surprised. I didn't know about Kentucky, obviously, until just a little while ago, because up in when I did my presentation at PBS in July, it was no states. No states required you to lock your door, yet they had made all these accommodations for fortifications. And So, again, I mean, as we pair this over, look at this uh, side by side with what's happening now, you know, no school is taking the temperature of every kid that they're going in, uh, observing for certain symptoms, um, none of that is happening or across their different sites, whether it be 4K community sites. But yet, you know, they're jumping into these these tangible things, you know, that people want to see, that customer perceived value. If I can see someone doing the Ghostbusters backpack spraying the mist around, that makes me feel better. That's a great mental image in my head. I've got this guy walking around with this big cloud, just walking out of this cloud, making this big mess. Right. <laughs> He has to have, like, Venkman on his, like, you know, jumpsuit, right? That's It's got to make it complete with a couple of hoses, like, you know, <laughs> connecting in. <laughs> uh, just, just, uh, 
It's never never ceases to amaze me what some of the stuff that you you bring to me. Even though I I mean I know it's factual, but it's just you always yeah. seem to blow my mind with stuff that a oh, people come come up with and then people buy. Right? It, this is you know I, we can come up with some bad ideas, right? Yeah, but to actually yeah. get them made and and sold is a whole other problem. Yeah, and I mean, and I feel for administrators and and people put in these positions, right? Because it's a really tough position uh, to be in. If, if someone is saying, you know, well, I'm willing, you know, we should be willing to pay this if there is this chance that it would, you know, possibly have this this impact of making us, you know, safer. So, yeah, it, it's tough, but again, it opens up this door for kind of like anything goes, um, especially if it has some pseudoscience appearance to it in presentation. And again, it's not that the the product technically is inaccurate. I mean, maybe it does kill all of this stuff, but in a million square foot campus and then all of your HVAC systems. I mean, when schools get mold, Jim, which is pretty common in Wisconsin because we have high humidity in summer. I mean, a, just a little bit of mold takes a school like a month to, to combat. Like they bring in special teams. of Oh, yeah, mold's, create... mold's horrendous when you have right. to get rid of it. So, so I mean, um, you know, to, to think that we can can kind of go around, you know, a couple folks in, in these backpacks spraying around to get rid of this virus I think is, you know, it's just wishful thinking. Um, And I know, I mean, there'll be people who email me and say, well, here's our product and all of this proof. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't doubt that, right? But I mean, how do do you account for, again, you know, hundreds of kids and staff coming in and out of your building and then all of the hundreds of people they've interacted with? And, you know, Jim, also the, you know, products coming in from your in your mail i mean maybe they've come on a, a amazon vehicle that's interacted with the usps and amazon centers and packages coming all over the place so we just don't know so if this actually does live on hard surfaces i mean every post office certainly <laughs> has it right every amazon center probably you know is 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 dealing with this and but i mean you know, if we were all the cargo bays of all those planes that travel have it right every cargo bay you know yeah cargo bays of, of that and of, of semi trucks of every postal vehicle we just don't know and but i mean once we start looking at that i mean if if that were scrutinized that would bring us to a halt so at some point how much of that would even be talked about um do you remember the city core tower um, back in 77 that was built and after it was built they found out like a 55 mile an hour wind would have toppled it i do remember what i watched the documentary about it but i don't remember because oh. i was too young okay oh god jim come on man um all right let me let me the old timer so yeah it was it was 77 i don't know it was boston or new york but so city corp um built built us the skyscraper and uh, well-engineered, right? Le- uh, Lemieux was, was the engineer on it. He did th- this presentation 20 years after the, the fact, telling what had happened. Got done with it, and then um, one of the engineering students was, was studying it, trying to figure out how it would handle the winds because it was built with a different type of foundation. Um, and then they discovered, oh, my God, like a wind, maybe like 55 miles an hour, would topple this, and it would wipe out like a city block in every direction. could kill thousands of people. And what they decided to do was hush it up, right? So this is public. Like Lemieux talked about this. This came out 20 years later in 1997. Um, they decided to keep it quiet. The, the governor, you know, the, the head of the city, um, the mayor, I guess, the welders union. Um, so there was a small group of people that, who knew about this. And they just said, we're going to go in at night. 
We have a cover story, and the cover story is we're going to make the building stronger for a 500-year storm because when we built it, we realized uh, we were pretty close at doing – like, we built it so well, right? <laughs> if we just go now and we retrofit it with these th- these kind of minor retrofits, why not? Like, it would just make sense because this building's going to be here 500 years. So that was the sell. And then um, – but they knew, like, it could fall down pretty much at any time. People are still working in it. People are working in the buildings next door. And for 20 years, people were sworn to secrecy, non-disclosure agreements, and it held. And there had to be thousands of people that knew that. So, you know, you start to get into these points when, you know, you're wondering who knows what and at what point will some information be shut down where it will absolutely not get into the public realm. Or if it does, you know, it, it will be – confusing and debunked kind of like when i was on your your show after the the hawaii missile crisis and Uh they're like yeah we just pressed the wrong button that wasn't supposed to go out to the public (laughs) very good point david we're out of time so hold on a second i've got a pennsylvania story in a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 